Good morning. If we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Luloyan, and, and I get to serve as the pastor of Liberty Church. Uh, really want to thank all of you, too, just for the encouraging words that many of you offered since uh, hearing the news about our new space that we're going to be moving into. I know many of you are excited about that along with me. Uh, we were able to, this past week, um, shoot a quick video, a quick video tour of that space. I know a lot of you probably saw that. If you didn't, uh, on that page that it's indicated in your bulletin, libertyharrisburg.org hub, uh, or on our Facebook page, you can see a, a little preview tour of what the space is going to look like. Uh, you'll be able to tell there's a lot of work that still needs to be done there. But that'll just maybe whet your appetite a little bit for, for what's to come uh, in these coming weeks. So I want to uh, offer that to you as well, make you aware of that. Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Annie mentioned, uh, page 954 is where we're going to be in that. And we're continuing this morning in our series that we've been in for about a month or so now uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're calling this series A Beautiful Mess. The big idea behind that, this whole series, is that because it is the people of God, because it's been established by Jesus, the church is beautiful. It's something great. It's something glorious, really. But because it's made up of people like you and me who are very much still in process, at the very same moment, it's a really messy thing. Corinth, 2,000 years ago, was full of examples of this beautiful mess, as is the church today. And if we haven't already seen that play out as we've been in this book over the last few weeks, when we get into chapters 5 and chapter 6, uh, it really becomes inescapable. There's a lot of mess involved amid the, the beauty. So this text that we're in today, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 11, touches on a handful of topics. But there's a common theme that underlies everything the Apostle Paul says here, and it's the notion of consistency. To read Paul's words here in light of this theme of consistency is going to help us grasp not only Uh, his instruction, the kinds of things that he's teaching through this passage, but it's also going to help us grasp the right motives and the right heart behind that. So I'd invite you to listen for that and and listen for that notion of consistency as we read now from this book that we love. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 11. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, our helper, show us your holy ways, teach us your paths. By your Holy Spirit, open our minds that we may be led in your truth and taught your will. May we praise you by listening to your word and by obeying it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So really, broadly speaking in this text, there's a call to two kinds of consistency, and we're going to look at both of those with the rest of our time this morning. An ethic consistent with our identity and discipline consistent with community. An ethic consistent with identity, discipline consistent with community. So first, let's talk about an ethic that's consistent with our identity. When we read this passage, and maybe this was you just a few moments ago as we read it, it's really easy to get drawn right into the morality issues. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about a man in the church there who is carrying on a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And what he means by that is not his biological mother, but, but a stepmother of some kind. And then he goes on to address issues like greed and lawsuits among Christians and idolatry and homosexuality. But before we get into any of that, two really important things that we need to see about this man. That he is a professing Christian and that he is unrepentant. So one, he's a professing Christian, right? He's a part of the church there in Corinth. And as Paul says in verse 11, he bears the name brother. And the reason that's so important is because it makes no sense at all to call someone to a standard that they don't believe in in the first place. So let's just talk about this right from the start this morning. The way that we engage with people has everything to do with what they claim to believe. The way we engage with people has everything to do with what they claim to believe. With anyone who doesn't claim to be a Christian, the starting point is not that person's lifestyle, that person's morality, that person's practices. What's the starting point? The starting point is the gospel. 
What does this man, what does this woman do with Jesus? What do they do with the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? And what are their obstacles for believing in him? It's not that we can't talk about lifestyle or morality or other things like that, but until that person decides that Jesus is necessary, uh, that his work and his, his life is beautiful, until they entrust their life to him, it's really missing the point to argue over the kind of life he or she is living. People have no reason to pursue a standard that they haven't bought into. They have no reason to be faithful to a God that they don't even claim to believe in. And this is a really important point. Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is not moralism. Inside and outside the church, the two get confused all the time. But they are not even close to the same thing. Right? Moralism says, do good things and be a good person. Christianity says, actually, left to ourselves, we're not good people and we're incapable of doing good things. So the gospel is not do good things, be a good person. The gospel is look to Jesus instead. When we come to believe in Jesus, and I think most of us in the room are probably already aware of this, there are significant moral imperatives. There are significant moral implications. But it's never ultimately about what we do. It's always and only about what Jesus has done for us and then living out a response to that. So another way to think about this, Christian morality is all about consistency. It's about an ethic that's consistent with an identity that we've already been given. So when we come to believe in the work of Christ on our behalf, we are given a new identity. We're adopted into God's family. We're called children of God. Uh, we're, we're called new creations. And then we pursue an ethic that's consistent with that. But the identity part always drives the ethic. So it's because we are part of God's family, this is now how we live. It's because we are new creations, we say yes to these things, we say no to these things. So the reason that Paul is confronting this man and his sin and calling the church to respond is because this man is behaving inconsistently with his professed identity. So that's one really important piece here. And then the other is that this man is unrepentant. There's no sign or remorse of repentance when you read these words in 1 Corinthians 5. From him or from the church. Instead, what's the response that it seems like is coming out of the church there? Arrogance, boasting. The reason that's important for us to see in this text is because consistent Christianity is not the same thing as perfection. Right? Consistent Christianity would be all about living a perfect life if that were possible. But as you and I well know, it is not. And you and me and every single Christian who has ever lived is inconsistent. Right? Sin is inconsistency. That's the definition of sin. It's actions, uh, thoughts, words, motivations that are inconsistent with God's purposes and God's intent and God's directive for our lives. So the question isn't whether or not you and I are going to be inconsistent. It's when we are inconsistent, what will we do? Will we repent of that or will we dig our heels in and persist in that inconsistency? Consistent Christianity is not perfection, it's repentance. It's pursuing, first of all, this, this ethic that, that lines up with the identity that we've been given, but when we fall short, when we find ourselves inconsistent, it's acknowledging that, it's grieving that, it's taking that to Jesus like we do in our service every week, 
trusting that he will, he will offer his mercy and his forgiveness to us. So what Paul is addressing here is not simply this man has sinned. Right? It's about a man who has sinned arrogantly, willfully, and persistently with no remorse and no repentance. So as much as this passage then is about how the church is called to respond in situations like this, what we should first see in this text for you and I is an opportunity for reflection. Am I living consistently with what I claim to believe? And am I repentant when I am inconsistent? I know we have people here in the room who are in all kinds of places in their lives right now. For any of you who are here who don't claim to be Christians, uh, and maybe you're here and you're exploring Christianity, you're not exactly sure what to do with Jesus and some of these claims that he makes. If that's you, let me just take the opportunity to say this. Would you forgive me and would you forgive other Christians you know for the times that we have tried to impose a standard on you that you have not claimed for yourself. Right? That's the wrong starting point. And at best, it's misguided on our part. At best, that will lead you down a road of moralism, which is not the same thing as the good news of Jesus. And it's something that Christians themselves have to repent of all the time. So if you've experienced that, here or anywhere else from Christians, would you please forgive us for that? For those who are here who are Christians, are you living consistently with what you claim to believe? And there are a number of specific sins, specific kinds of inconsistency that Paul points out in these verses. It's not an exhaustive list, but at least gives us a chance for some reflection. He talks about sexual immorality. And in the original language, this is a really broad term that would include anything outside of God's design for sexual activity. And as we look at the, the entire counsel of, of Scripture and, and all the wisdom that is in that, we really see two options for us in terms of what's God's design for sexual activity. Number one is singleness. You can be single and you can refrain from sexual activity. That's a good option that we often overlook, especially in the church. We don't talk about that very much. We'll talk about that more when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The other option is consensual sexual activity between a man and a woman who enter into this covenant relationship that we call marriage. So what falls outside of that? Well, a lot falls outside of that, which is why this term needs to be so broad. Near the end of this passage, Paul spells out a couple specific forms of that, adultery and homosexual activity. But there's a lot more that would fall under the umbrella of sexual immorality. Um, Pornography would fall under that umbrella. Any form of rape or abuse, whether it's in a marriage relationship or not, would fall under that. Sex outside of marriage, um, whether it's when you're already married with someone else, whether it's when you're dating, um, whether it's a committed relationship or not, all of these things would fall outside of that umbrella, outside outside of God's design. And I wish we could spend more time on this today, but we really, we really can't. Um, I will say this, back in the fall of 2012, so four years back, we actually devoted a whole sermon to the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you want to go to our website and find that, we talk a lot more about this. But here, here's the gist of it. It's that God doesn't just care about your soul. God cares about your body. And he cares what you do with your body. And part of his all-encompassing work of salvation is buying you back from using your body to enslave yourself and damage yourself and damage others. 
He sets us free to use our body according to his good design and not in one or more of the hundreds of different ways that all of us are prone to act out of a broken sexuality. So the question for us, are we living in light of that? Paul talks about greed and swindling as well. And this whole part in chapter 6 about lawsuits with Christians against Christians reveals one major thing. It reveals that we are too attached to this life. We're too attached to this life. As Christians, we've been given this secure future in Jesus, but we're short-sighted. So we often wind up thinking in some way or another that this place is our home. And then we care far more about money and property and being right. right? We want vindication in the eyes of a civil court or the world or whoever, rather than being content with vindication that comes from God. And Paul says, for for all those who have been given this new identity as God's people, isn't it better to suffer wrong? Isn't it better to be defrauded? Because when we're greedy, when we're swindlers, when we defraud one another, when we sue one another, everybody loses. Everybody loses. The church loses. And the world loses because rather than see Christians who sacrificially love one another and are able to forego money and property and vindication in the eyes of the world, they see Christians who do the same thing that everybody else does. Everybody loses. And Paul talks about idolatry and drunkenness and reviling. The questions behind those, what are we devoting our lives to? That's the idolatry question. Um, What are we allowing to influence and control us? That's the drunkenness question. How do we use our words? That's the reviling question. In all of these areas, is our ethic consistent with our identity? And then a second really important question, are we repentant when we find ourselves inconsistent? Because as you know, as well as I do, we will be inconsistent in these areas and others at times. And consistent Christianity isn't perfection, then it's a lifestyle of repentance. It's acknowledging these things. It's, it's taking them to Jesus, receiving his forgiveness, and then turning from these things over and over again so that we might continue to pursue this ethic consistent with our identity. Okay, and the reason that we spend so much time building this as the foundation for this text and asking these important questions, not only of this man in Corinth, but of, but of us, is because it's the starting point for understanding the rest of what's going on in chapters 5 and 6. When someone professes to be a Christian, and when that someone is unrepentant, that's when the church is called to practice what's often referred to as church discipline. And that leads us to the second call to consistency in this text, which is a discipline that's consistent with community. Discipline that's consistent with community. Okay, so we've seen already... In what we've looked at, this is an in-house matter, so to speak. So Paul's not talking about how to confront or address sin that's like out there in the world. He's talking about in-house things in the church. But even as an in-house matter, and maybe you're feeling this right now, like maybe you are on the edge of your seat because this grates against our sensibilities. This grates against our modern sensibilities. No less than four times, Paul talks about removing this person from the church. And so you might be indignant right now. Like, isn't that unloving? Didn't Jesus say not to judge people? How is what Paul's talking about here consistent with what Jesus has established the church to be and to do in the world? 
We've got to remember that the church is no mere human organization or institution. Right? That's the backdrop for this entire letter that Paul writes to these people. That the church is the people of God, bought by the blood of Jesus, and in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Right? The church has been established by Jesus to reflect, uh, to embody, to enact God's redemptive intent and God's redemptive purposes for the world. And in order to do that, the church has to maintain a really high sensitivity to sin. And so what we see here is that the Christians in Corinth, they've become desensitized. Right? And sin is normal. Right? People sin all the time, and Christians definitely included. But the church in Corinth has taken what is normal and allowed it to become normative. And so Paul starts chapter 5 on a note of horror, really. Like, what are you doing? Church, what are you doing? You've become so desensitized to sin, you're embracing something that even the pagans of your city reject. And that's saying something because Corinth is not like Puritan New England 400 years ago. Corinth is a hotbed of all kinds of sexual immorality, sexual dysfunction, right? This would be like someone today saying, like, they don't even do that in Vegas. It's not even legal there. So there's a, there's a major threat to two parties here. There's a threat to this man himself who is sinning, and there's a threat to the entire church. For this man, the danger is that if no action is taken, he's going to go on thinking that the inconsistency between his profession of faith in Jesus and his actions aren't, isn't that big of a deal. But it's a huge deal. And what Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 6, don't be deceived about this. People who willfully and unrepentantly persist in sin, whatever that sin might be, do not inherit the kingdom of God. So this isn't some kind of game that you and I get to play, insisting that we can follow Jesus and simultaneously do whatever we want. So something has to happen in order to wake this man up to the danger that he's in. But he's not the only one in danger. The whole church is in danger. Why? Because as Paul says in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. In the New Testament, leaven or yeast is often used as a metaphor for evil that spreads really rapidly and really pervasively. And so to tolerate or even celebrate what this man is doing not only gives him the impression that that inconsistency is not a big deal, it also gives the church the impression that it's not a big deal, and in some way then gives them permission to tolerate and to celebrate other forms of evil that they find appealing. And so Paul says, don't tolerate this, address this. You don't do this man, you don't do the church any good by being passive and permissive. And it seems as though the Corinthian Christians were not that different from many of us in the West in the 21st century. And I mean that in this way. A lot of people in our day would summarize the Christian ethic with two words. Judge not. Judge not. And those are really important words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. But they often get isolated from the rest of Scripture. They often get extrapolated to mean that we should never say or address anything going on in anyone else's life. But how does Jesus summarize the ethics of the kingdom of God? He doesn't summarize them with the words judge not. He summarizes them with the words 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summarizes the ethics. Love for your neighbor as yourself sometimes means you care about that person enough to intervene. So Paul says you need to judge the men and women who profess to be Christians but who unrepentantly continue in sin. He said, don't, you don't judge people outside the church. You leave that to God and you make your primary concern helping them see the greatness of Jesus and their need for him. But for those who already claim to know Jesus, you have to take action. You have to do something. And to take action means that you have to make a judgment that this person is living inconsistently. And I would urge us all to see the difference between judgmentalism, which is what Jesus commands us not to be or do, and the difference between that and making a judgment that then leads to appropriate and loving action. And it has everything to do with the motive behind it, which we're going to circle back to as we close in in a little while. But let's talk about this for a second. Why this action? Why remove this person from the church? It's because of what the church is. What's the church? The church is the community of Jesus. It's people who are in communion with Jesus. But there is no communion with Jesus apart from faith and repentance. And so when someone continues in their sin, refusing to repent, what that does is actually it calls into question their entire relationship with Jesus. And that's why Paul says to remove this person from the church. People are removed from the community of the church because that physical separation is meant to convey a spiritual separation. The physical separation is meant to convey spiritual separation. A physical separation is a, is a tangible way of saying, this is so serious that I have reasonable belief and concern that you aren't a Christian at all. And this is what makes church discipline different from like advice or counsel. There are times, and more often these kinds of times, where you say to someone, I don't think what you're doing is a good idea. I think that lacks wisdom. There are times that you say that, and there are times where you need to say, I fear for your soul. I fear that you are spiritually separated from Christ. And the man here in 1 Corinthians 5 is so far past the point of advice and counsel. His actions his persistence in them, his lack of repentance have called into question his, his salvation. But we can't miss this. What's the goal of removing someone from the church? It's restoration. Right? This, is, this is remedial action. And the goal is that in being removed from the church, this person will wake up to the dangerous position he is in, that he will repent, he will experience the salvation that he all along has been claiming to believe. That's the goal. Now, practically, what does this look like? What does church discipline look like? Paul says not to eat with or associate with this man. And over the years, this text has been used by certain groups, uh, Christian groups, Christian tribes, for shunning, uh, for disfellowshipping, essentially turning a cold shoulder to someone, having nothing to do with them at all anymore. But I think that's farther then Paul intends his words to be taken here. What is he speaking about when he talks about association and eating with someone? He's talking about the deep kind of fellowship among people who are in the community of Jesus. And that's what this man needs to be removed from, which would mean having him not participate in the Lord's Supper, right? the meal where we celebrate our communion with Jesus and our communion with one another. 
And that would mean removing this person from the life of the church when the church regularly gathers for, for worship, when the church regularly gathers to, to um, speak truth and love and grace to one another, whatever that looks like. You'd be removing a person from that. But beyond that, and what Paul is really driving at here, it means that we would start to relate to this person as we would an unbeliever, which for Jesus, which for Paul, always means still a posture of love. How do we treat other people who aren't Christians? Well, I hope it's not shunning them and turning a cold shoulder to them. Hopefully it means you do spend time with them, you do care about them, you long for them to repent, you long for them to believe the gospel. It's just that for anyone who has already claimed to know Jesus and then functionally rejected him with their life, part of loving him means we don't give false assurances or false hope that he's a Christian. It means we don't do her the disservice of letting her live in the delusion or the deceit that she will inherit the kingdom of God when we're concerned that she won't. So if this kind of church discipline were to happen to someone that you know and love. That doesn't mean that you have to cut ties with them completely. It doesn't mean that you cut off your friends. Parents, it doesn't mean that you sever a relationship with your kid or vice versa, a kid with your, with your parent. It's not that we stop loving someone if they're removed from the church. It's just that the love changes. We're no longer sharing this deep bond in Christ with them anymore. Instead, we're loving them as we would anyone who doesn't truly know and follow Jesus. Okay, now how does this play out in the life of Liberty Church? Well, rather than get into kind of the specifics of like here's the the church discipline kind of hierarchy, the best form of church discipline we never call church discipline at all. What do we call it? We call it the proactive engagement of Christians in each other's lives. We call it community. Christian community is where we gather to pursue the kinds of lives Jesus calls us to live. It's where we lovingly and graciously point one another to repentance and faith when we are inconsistent. It's part, it's, it means our lives being open to that kind of relationship from others. It means offering that same kind of thing to them. This is why these kinds of commitments are part of the vows that we make to each other when we come into covenant here uh, at this church. And this is why we do things like try to limit the size of our home groups and, and, and make them as much as possible with people that you live somewhat close to. Right? It's all in an effort to cultivate the kind of community with one another that proactively helps us fight sin and be people who are consistent, but when we're inconsistent, people who are repentant. Let me ask you this. If, God forbid, you were ever in a situation like this man in Corinth, and you were asked to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper, or you were removed from the church. Let's say that were to happen to you today. If that were to happen to you today, would it even make that big of a difference in your life? Would you feel that as a loss? Because the assumption that Paul makes here is that there is a huge benefit of care and love and protection in the community of the church. And the assumption he makes is to be removed from that would be a major consequence But in our day, the church is more often this loose social affiliation where we meet in the same room for an hour or so a week. And so if I'm removed from that, well, what's the big deal, really? I'll just go down the street to another place where I can meet for another hour or so a week and do that there. See, whether or not you or I are ever under church discipline like this, this text gives us a chance to see what the church was meant to be. 
Would you feel it if you were separated from the life of the church? Right? We are meant to have our lives integrated with one another in such a way that we would feel that. And so if we wouldn't feel that right now, why not? And what will it look like for you and me to pursue the kind of community that, that Paul assumes is the backdrop for talking about church discipline? One last thing as we close. Christians aren't just those who pursue an ethic consistent with their identity. And they aren't those who practice a discipline that's consistent with community. They pursue all of this with a consistent heart. And that's where this line of thinking leads in this passage. Who are Christians? Paul says, they are those who have been washed. They are those who have been sanctified or made clean, made holy. They are those who have been justified. They are those who have been declared righteous through the work of Jesus and the Spirit of our God. But we can never forget the place from which we have been rescued. Right? Who are all these sinful, unrepentant people who need this kind of drastic measure taken on their behalf? Well, it's me apart from the washing of Jesus. And it's me apart from the mercy and grace of God. And Paul says, such were some of you. The second that we forget who we were, the second that we forget the depth of our need for rescue and the only means by which that rescue has come, that is the moment that we respond with an inconsistent heart. That is the moment that we give ourselves too much credit and this washing, sanctifying, justifying work of Jesus too little. A consistent heart in these matters is a mercy-saturated heart. It is a heart overwhelmed by the mercy that I need and the mercy that I have received in Christ. It is a heart that longs for other people to experience that exact same thing. Church discipline, real and sincere church discipline, is only and always motivated by mercy. It is a severe mercy to be sure. But it is a mercy-saturated warning that persisting in your sin unrepentantly means you won't inherit the kingdom of God. It's saying to another person, I want you to inherit the kingdom of God. I want that for you, and I'm concerned that you won't right now. In 1860, the British preacher Charles Spurgeon captured this mercy-saturated heart when he said this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Okay, that's the heart behind the severe mercy of church discipline. It's pleading with someone, don't shipwreck your soul and separate yourself from Christ. It's saying, I want the kingdom of God for you and I'm so concerned right now that you're not going to inherit it. And with the stakes that high, I cannot be passive and permissive. So oh, that each one of us would experience that kind of love. Oh, that all of us would experience being loved that well. And indeed, in Christ, we have been loved that well. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. May we live an ethic consistent with our identity. May we repent 
of our inconsistencies. And then for the good of one another and the good of the church, may we take sin seriously, but always love others with the mercy and grace that we ourselves have received from Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. God, be merciful to us. These are hard words. And apart from your work in our lives, we are not, we would not inherit your kingdom. And so we pray that we would regularly remember, always remember the mercy you have shown us that we would be free in that to then ask these hard kinds of questions. Are we living consistently with the identity that you have given us? And are we repentant when we are inconsistent? Would you make us people who, who live a life of repentance as we pursue this consistent ethic and fall short? Make us people who live lives of repentance. And, and through our relationships with one another, through what you have called the church to do in extreme cases like this, May we love other people well enough that does not let them go down this road without wrapping our arms around them and saying, please stop. Give us that kind of mercy-saturated heart for one another and for people who are shipwrecking their lives in a certain moment. Thank you for your table. Thank you for your finished work that strengthens us, that reminds us of your good gifts. And we come now feeling the weight of sin, but hopeful and confident that you are a merciful God who forgives and has forgiven in Christ. Amen.